the Fertility Podcast is here to help you understand more about your fertility and for the last eight years has published a lot of conversations with experts and people sharing their stories. It's now going back to its roots, giving you people's lived experiences once again to give you comfort in knowing there's a community of people who get it so you find commonality, be inspired and know you're not alone. Started by me, Natalie Silverman, a former patient, once I was pregnant after fertility treatment, I later joined forces with Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant, who is now your host. And here she is. Hi, how are you? Welcome to this episode of the Fertility Podcast. Got a few bits and pieces to talk about, first of all. I know that there's been a lot of anxiety and worry over recent weeks following the media announcements that there have been some problems with the solution used for freezing egg and embryos. And these were specifically at, sadly, at Guy's and St. Thomas's fertility and Jessup's fertility in Sheffield. And I know that's caused a lot of anxiety around the community and concerns, obviously, for your eggs or embryos. The HFEA have also put out an announcement. So if you've not seen that, please do check out the HFEA webpage where you'll see that their announcement is on the page. But also they very much recommend, as do we all, that if you are concerned at all about your eggs or embryos, then don't delay in contacting your clinic. And we are reassured that it is isolated to those clinics. But if you have any concerns and you want to just check on those precious eggs and embryos, then do contact your clinic because they are the best people to help and advise you correctly. On that note, I want to talk about something that really irritated me. It was a couple of weeks ago, I went to my hair salon and I was having a really nice blow dry, actually, after having my hair cut. And I was chatting with my hairdresser and she was talking about a friend of hers who was really struggling to access care for women's health issues on the NHS. And... This is something that I I feel really strongly about. And last year, the government published the Women's Health Strategy, which part of that was to improve access to healthcare for women and clearly identifying that we are, unfortunately, we're 51% of the population, but unfortunately, we are the least researched and the least funded area of healthcare. And... It is such a shame. In fact, I think it's something like 3% of funding is into women's health care. And what really got me upset and cross for this woman is that her friend had been told, and she was told this from, I can see, a very equally as frustrated as me, a healthcare professional who is battling the system. And she was told that she was the wrong sex for the NHS. I think I took a massive inhale of breath thinking that this is just so wrong. This shouldn't be the case. We should have access to healthcare regardless of your sexual orientation, regardless of whether you're male or female. We should have equal access. And it's so frustrating to hear that women are being told that they are the wrong sex for the NHS, meaning that if you're a man, you can go through and and get your 
quicker access to healthcare. Now we know that waiting lists are huge anyway for everybody, but it seems that waiting lists and issues getting access seem to be a harder and more difficult for women, and it's so wrong. So on that note, today's guest is is really interesting because it kind of fits into how important it is that we improve access for women's healthcare and men's healthcare, particularly when we're talking about fertility. And so I'm joined today by my lovely friend and colleague, Andrea Trigo. And Andrea is a nurse and she's also the CEO and founder of Enhanced Fertility Programme. And Enhanced Fertility allows men and women on a fertility journey to have personalised fertility care with a complete assessment and at-home testing for female and male fertility. So whilst you might be struggling to access NHS care, there is certain elements of care that you can take into your own hands and actually getting tested early, getting some blood tests done early to find out if there are any problems stands you in the better place then for your fertility journey and for you feeling empowered, something that I talk about a lot because I feel really strongly about it. So I'm hoping that you're going to find it interesting talking to Andrea. Andrea's coming into a perspective actually of her own fertility journey when she was diagnosed with a condition called MRKH, which Andrea is going to tell us more about because it is actually quite rare. So without further ado, let's bring Andrea in. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, it's always a pleasure. And as I've already explained in your intro, it's always great to talk to a fellow nurse. I love it. It makes life a lot easier for me. And obviously, we've already had quite a bit of a chat before we started this recording about what we've been up to and how busy Mm -hmm. we both are. So it's great to have you here. But obviously, what we're talking about today and The reason why I wanted to get you on is to talk about something called, and I'm going to let you in a minute explain its full title because there's no way I would say it, but something called MRKH because I think a lot of people won't have ever heard of it. So tell us what MRKH is to start with. Thank you, Kate. So I think, you know, even though I'm a nurse, I was a patient to start with. And I was diagnosed with MRKH when I was very, very young. I was about 17 when I realized that something wasn't quite right. And I I read those four letters on a piece of paper. And that stands for Mayer Rokitansky Kusterhauser. Hence the reason why I was not going to try and even say it, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very complex name, but it's basically the name of four doctors who sort of found out about this problem around the same time. So they all wanted their name in this syndrome. Okay. And how long ago was that? When did they identify? And you can tell us in a minute what it is, but when did they identify this problem? So for me, I was very, very young, over 20 years ago. And as any young teenage girl, I could see that my body was developing. So I was having breasts I had a bit of a waist I could see that my cousins who are my age were also developing of course my friends at school and there were lots of talks about periods and my friends and cousins were starting their periods and they were talking about pads and for me I was also waiting for my periods to start 
and they just weren't starting. And when I was 15, my mom took me to the doctor because that was quite unusual. And the doctor just said that some girls just start a bit later in life. They told me to wait another year, which I did. A year later, we went to the doctor again. And the doctor told us again to wait another year. And it was at 17 that they said, maybe this is not quite right. At 17, girls should already have their periods. We need to investigate further. So I've wasted close to three years of not knowing what it was. And when I started with investigations, I had a lot of testing done. So I did blood testing to check my hormone levels, which were okay. And I did scanning, ultrasound scans, which showed a normal pelvic cavity and identified a uterus, which, as you'll see, of course, it was not there. But I think at the time they were looking at the bladder, full bladder. So I think... That was a mistake, but I had a couple of ultrasound scans that showed normal. Wow. I had karyotype testing, which showed I was female. I was told that maybe the reason why I didn't have periods was because I was too skinny. So I was told to put on a bit of weight, which I did. And then I was even told that maybe I should try the pill to trigger a bleed which I did a couple of times and there was no bleed. Mm -hmm. So all of that took a long time as well. So it was when I was almost close to 18, when that doctor told me, maybe you need to see a gynecologist, because at that point I was only being seen by an endocrinologist. So the gynecologist, I remember it so well, asked me to get undressed and lay on on the examination table with our legs up as women are so used to and I was feeling so confident because I think that's just something normal and expected I have a big family of women when everyone is used to you know very open and used to going to the doctor and she tried to do an examination and she couldn't and it was very very painful for me So she told me to get dressed and sit. And that's when she said that she thought that I had been born without a uterus, without a vagina, and that I might have to have surgery to reconstruct my vagina. So in that moment, of course, I was not expecting those news. No one is expecting those news. And the first thing I said was, I want my mom My mom was waiting in the waiting area. She had my sister in her arms. My sister was a baby at the time. So my mom came into the consultation room and the doctor said the same thing. I think Andrea doesn't have a uterus. I don't think she has a vagina. We need to refer her to the NHS to have further investigations, but she might need surgery. So that is the moment when everything changes, because I didn't even know that this was possible. How can someone be born without a uterus and without a vagina? And especially when you've had a scan that showed, to all intents and purposes, what they thought was a uterus. Exactly. To then be told, actually, that could be 
incorrect. And not only one scan, but you said two scans. Exactly. And I think now I know that scanning is not the best tool to diagnose MRKH. But at the time, that's what it's just one of those basic investigations that they ask us to do, but it's not the best to diagnose this. But it affects one in 5,000 women. So it is a lot of women still. It's rare, but not that rare if we think about it. One in 5,000. Wow. That doesn't seem rare at all. Yet we don't talk about this. I know. And at the time, I was already at 18 in my first year of nursing school. And I kept thinking, how many students do we have in our school? Yep. There must be other women here like me. That's what I kept thinking. There must be more people like me because there was no social media, no Instagram, no Facebook uh, at no that mind. time. And I just kept thinking, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. Did you want to find commonality? Did you want to find somebody else that was experiencing what you were going through? I think so, because yeah. when we think about when we are really young, 17, we don't really want to be different. We yeah. want to be like everyone else. Yeah. yeah. And being different really bothered me I felt like I was different from all the other girls I couldn't participate in conversations about periods and beds and absolutely and it's that embarrassment isn't it because that that is you know remember from being young myself that is the conversation isn't it is have you started your period and that's all you talk about at that age I mean what did you do did you say yes and kind of have a little story or what did you how did you get around that So from that point, I was referred to the National Health Service. Mm. And, you know, even though I had heard of the possibility of being born without a uterus in the vagina, the doctors in the National Health Service did not believe that diagnosis. So it was very frustrating because over the next few months, I had to go through a series of very painful and embarrassing examinations by junior doctors. So they tried multiple times to do a normal vaginal examination, which was very painful. I cried a lot. And it was only when they suggested that I had a laparoscopy, which is a procedure where they insert the camera in the abdomen. By that point, it was so much pain that I felt just do whatever you need to do. As long as I'm under anesthesia, I just don't mind. But I don't want to go through another vaginal examination because it's very painful I mean it almost seems the way you were treated quite barbaric do you think things have changed for diagnosis Mm. now MRKH is it simpler for women coming behind you when we talk about the UK I think diagnosing here is actually very good okay the UK has teams that are dedicated to this problem And they have really perfected, so they know what exams to ask for and they know how to communicate the news Mm. to young people. They have specialist nurses and specialist psychologists monitoring these women throughout their whole life. So that is great. But I think it's that time between trying to figure out going to the GP and before you're being referred that there is a big gap. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, one of the reasons why I kind of wanted to talk to you about this mm-hmm. was because back in the summer, I believe yeah. it was, was the first 
uterine transplant and this was mm-hmm. done in conjunction with Imperial College and Oxford University Hospitals obviously I've known you for a long time and I knew you were mm-hmm. diagnosed anyway but that made me think you know what this is really interesting and I want to talk to you about what you think you know what do you think yeah. about this as an as an option for the future does it because it, it's a bit scary isn't it this how connotation of a, a transferred uterus just feels a bit I don't know a bit scientific a bit a bit out there I suppose yeah yeah it probably shouldn't because my goodness we're doing it with other organs so why should the uterus be any different but I guess it's what the uterus does that makes mm-hmm. you think wow how how could that be successful going forward especially when it then becomes for a pregnancy yeah. so what are you I what are your thoughts on it I think that's a great question I remember when I was in that initial consultation room and the doctor told me that um I had been born without a uterus. My first question was, does that mean that I cannot have children? Mm-hmm. And she said, yes, I don't think you will be. And I just kept asking the same question over and over again, as if she was going to maybe say a different answer. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so that is the most challenging thing in the world is having to cope with not being able to have the, tr- the children that maybe you dreamt of. Absolutely. And when we're talking about MRKH, is what we call a complete uterine factor. So it's not an if, a maybe, you will, maybe, you won't. And I understand it's so difficult for our patients who are going through other causes of infertility when maybe they're trying every cycle and there's a hope and despair. For me, in a sense, I think it was a bit easier because I knew there is no if. So I just need to, you know, it was difficult, incredibly difficult. It's difficult every single day, but in a sense, there is no hope. Yeah. So at the time, surrogacy was not something that was widely talked about. Yeah. And uterine transplants, of course, were not even something that I had ever heard of. I understand as well from reading about it, that this lady who's had her a successful uterine transfer mm-hmm. due to have embryo transfer with Lister sometime, yeah. right, sometime this year. I don't know whether there's been an update on that at all or whether we've heard yeah. anything. I suppose we probably won't hear anything for a while, but yeah, be interesting so, to see so, what happens. Yeah, so she has MRKH. We don't know who that woman is. And at the time, I know she chose to be anonymous. And, you know, I really understand that. Because there is so much stigma associated with alternative ways of reaching parenthood. And I'm sure that IVF, maybe 40 years ago, when it was a new thing, maybe that's how people talked about it. I think you're right. And and so people think surrogacy is really, really odd. And they really think that it's something people do because they don't want to ruin their bodies. And I think the same thing with a uterine transplant. They think it's a choice. Wow. But having a uterine transplant is never a choice. It's a last resort for someone who has no other option. So I'm very pro-increasing availability of treatment options. It doesn't mean that... One solution that is good for me is going to be good for someone else. And different women with MRKH may choose to do surrogacy. Some may choose 
uterine transplants. Some may choose not to have children or to adopt or do whatever, but I think it's important to have those choices available. Yeah, I don't see it any differently to donating mm. another organ, you mm. know. I think what this has given women or the, the hopefully the option mm-hmm. will be well if this goes well and I guess we're not going to know until she hopefully has successfully delivered her baby but what this does is it gives women hope you know to answer your concerns and the feelings that there was no hope this now yeah. does present you with the hope of potentially being able to carry your own baby in the future if that's what you personally decided or you know I'm talking with you as in generally it gives women that option because having been pregnant myself I know how wonderful it is to be able to carry a child it's the most wonderful Mm -hmm. thing we have for the majority of women it's the most normal thing yet Mm -hmm. for you know the 5,000 women in the UK that have MRKH it's something that is just it's a dream isn't it it's a dream that is not accessible right now so I think having women like this lady in the UK volunteering her body to have this treatment is very commendable. I think it's worth saying that even though in the UK this was the first, there's many women all over the world who already had uterine transplants, who have already given birth to healthy babies. So it's good to see that it's becoming more available, but it's far from being a medical solution that would be available in the NHS, that would be available through private fertility clinics. We're not there yet. That leads me on to kind of my you know, next question is when we we talk about accessibility for treatment and we know mm-hmm. how that can be and we have the, the NHS and the private system and we've got the postcode lottery. I'm thinking about with certain male factor diagnoses, then in some circumstances, depending on what the issue is then couples are eligible for nhs treatment because of the male mm-hmm. factor not all not all by no means all but some of yeah them. where do you think in the future i know like right now clearly we're still at the experimental mm-hmm. stage, so it's not there but do you see this in the future potentially treatment being available on the nhs for women with mrkh i would like to see that because i dream of the day when Everyone who wants to grow a family is able to do so and not being able to do so naturally is already so painful mm-hmm. when we think about not having access to the diagnostics and treatments that we need and having to struggle financially, emotionally to have the treatment we need. I just want to think that one day this could be available for women who need it. I know that They have tried uterine transplants from live donors. So typically it will be either a mom donating to the daughter who doesn't have a uterus. It could be also another non-related donor. It could be a deceased donor like with any other organ donation. So those are all possibilities. And I think if it increases reproductive choice, I do think it should be available for all but we've got to go through the science and everything first haven't we and all the experimental side of it so it'll be quite a while I think before we get to that point but hopefully we'll get there so given the work that you do and I'll let you kind of explain that in a moment has that been your drive really given your own personal circumstances has that your drive to create 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely, Kate. You know, going through infertility is so painful emotionally. And I've realized that it's this pain that stays for life. And, you know, whilst in the beginning I was worried because I couldn't have those conversations with my teenage colleagues. Now I'm at the stage where my friends all have children. Maybe they're on their second children and I can't share that with them. Equally, I can't give my parents the grandchildren that I think they would love to experience. And when I'm older, I will not have grandchildren of my own. So it's a forever loss. And I wanted to give it some positive meaning to this ultimate despair. And that's why I've decided to help other people through my work. I know that accessibility to diagnostics and care is a big problem in the UK. It's a big problem in Europe, all over the world. Most people who need treatment are not able to have it through national health systems. They're not able to pay for it privately. So we want to make sure that at least with our platform, with our diagnostics, people can have cheaper diagnostics that gives them an answer, an accurate diagnostics, And we're now working with artificial intelligence to optimize the treatment cycles so that hopefully instead of three, four or five cycles, they can have a baby with just one or two cycles. So optimizing treatments that would be cheaper for them, more efficient for clinics and improving accessibility. That is for sure my life's work and my diagnosis is what drives me every single day to try and make that possible. Yeah, I completely understand that. And where can people find more about you, Andrea, and the work that you're doing? Yeah, so they can find us online. Our website is efp.clinic. We're also everywhere on social media, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, all platforms. Great. Well, I'll put all the links in the show notes <laughs> as well. So. Yeah. People feel free to reach out yeah absolutely and please do what andrea is doing is absolutely fascinating and she's really making a difference in the fertility space so do go and check that out before i let you go andrea just i guess based on your personal experience what would be one thing that you would advise somebody that is may or may not be in your own situation mm-hmm. but maybe on a quest to find answers regardless mm-hmm. of that would be what would be one thing that you'd advise or what would be that one thing that you'd wish you'd known before yeah I think number one it would be to make sure that people are getting tested and diagnosed in a timely fashion because our research shows that people are taking on average 3.2 years just to get the diagnosis that's way too long especially when we're talking about trying to conceive. Three years might be the difference between a good ovarian reserve and a bad ovarian reserve. Absolutely. So be tested, you know. I also don't think people should be tested if they haven't tried for six to 12 months, so give it a go naturally. But if things aren't working after six to 12 months, start investigating what might be happening. Yeah, I totally agree that one thing that... I'm really passionate about talking about on the fertility podcast is becoming your own fertility advocate, getting empowered, yeah. getting knowledge, seeking answers, and that can make all the difference. And I, and I think mm-hmm. sadly, sadly, we do have to advocate for ourselves, but if you can get the knowledge and be empowered to do so, then you're halfway there, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. 
Thank you, Andrea. It's been amazing talking to you. It's been fascinating hearing about your story. And I'll tell you what, I'm still gobsmacked that it's one in 5,000 women, something I did not know. And this is why I love this podcast, because I'm learning something every single day. So thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge, your wisdom, your own personal experience. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kate. Wow. Well, to be honest, I'm feeling a bit gobsmacked at that stat that Andrea shared with us. One in 5,000 women have MRKH. And it just blows my mind because it's just not something that I think we kind of are aware of, really, that it would be that high. I mean, that just seems like an awful lot of, of women to me. It just really struck me. It made me think that there are young people out there, that are young women out there that have no idea, maybe are searching for answers as to why things don't seem quite right for them. And that they will be going through the same anxieties that Andrea went through as a young person with her periods not starting and not really being able to understand why and having investigations, some of which were embarrassing and uncomfortable, painful. Yeah, it just breaks my heart, really, when I think about it. And, And it just shows you, doesn't it, that women's health is an area that we don't talk about and the thought of those young women dealing with that on their own at such a tender age and how can you comprehend how can you take on board what this means for you at that tender age other than the fact that at the time you you feel different and not like your peers and then on top of that then you're then thinking that there's the possibility that you won't have your own children or you won't carry your own child and then how that impacts you then in relationships later on in life and when you want to start a family of your own, what that means for you. And as Andrea said really eloquently, how what that means for her parents who won't have grandchildren and that she won't have grandchildren later on in life. It's so big, I can't actually comprehend how that must be and how that must feel. But thank you so much to Andrea for sharing her story. And I guess what we can take from this is have those conversations with your young people in your life especially if they're worrying about something really, really vital that we start to do that more. And go and check out Andrea's website. I'll put all the links in the show notes and you can find her on social media. She's doing loads of great work in space. Um, so go and see what she's up to. Anyway, on that note, we'll be back in another couple of weeks with another episode. So we will speak to you then. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Fertility Podcast, which is brought to you by NatChat Productions. The music is composed by Parler. It's hosted by Kate Davis, and the episodes are put together by Ella Woodhouse and exec produced by me, Natalie Silverman. Before you click onto your next podcast, we'd love it if you could either click on the star ratings or write a quick review, as it's a brilliant way for others to know what you think. And even just hitting follow or subscribe really helps other people know it's worth a listen. Finally, just to say, you can follow the podcast on Insta at Fertility Poddy. Kate is at your fertility nurse. And if you'd like to book in a consultation with Kate to understand more about your fertility and reproductive health, just visit yourfertilityjourney.com.